Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewellery. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 135, Glyndwr Rising. First of all, let's give a bit of general context. Poor old Henry IV was an unlucky man in many ways. Throughout his reign there were endemic problems that would dog him throughout his reign. They did not take long to appear. Now I remember at university halls in my first year there was a very nice but ever so slightly dour cleaner in the finest Scottish tradition of the East Nuke, who would periodically remind me that money is the root of all evil. I suspect she wasn't thinking of Henry Bolingbroke, but if she had been, how right she would have been. Because basically poor old Henry had a lack of beans, and therefore no occasion to rub them together, and a distressing lack of bean control. For example, his revenue was £26,000 a year lower than the revenue Richard enjoyed in the last eight years of his rule. And at the same time, customs revenues were falling as wool exports fell. Wool exports fell partly for bad reasons, lots of French pirates in the Channel, a lack of bullion. And for good reasons, because the English were turning to cloth manufacture and therefore using the wool rather than exporting it. But whatever, customs dues were falling. Now this was bad enough, but just to make matters worse, Henry had come in on the ticket of the good old days, the days of yore. Namely, that the king would live of his own, and stop telling Parliament to give him more money through taxation. Taxation was only for years when there was a specific threat, not just to balance the books. Plus, the tonnage and poundage thing. Let's not have that as a standard thing. Us here in Parliament will grant it when you really need it. Hands up out there, who knows what tonnage and poundage is? Well, for those of you who, extraordinarily enough, don't know what tonnage and poundage is, it's the custom tax levied on every tonne of wine, a tonne, of course, being a barrel, 
or pound weight of exported or imported goods. If you didn't know this, well, quite how you got where you are today without that crucial piece of knowledge, I don't know. But basically the story is that customs dues may be falling, but also they weren't going to the king anymore unless Parliament granted it. So once again, Henry was finding out that government wasn't quite as easy as it looked from the outside. In addition to which, he wasn't proving the most economical of chaps. He had less money, but kept shelling out the same amount of money to support a household every bit as big as Richard's. Before long, and certainly by 1405, the wardrobe was a byword for insolvency. I can see puzzled frowns as I speak, at least from some of you. I mean, how can a wardrobe be insolvent? Never met one with a bank account, and why should that worry anyone anyway? Well, there were two great offices of state responsible for public monies. The Exchequer, which was responsible for the public purse and the wardrobe, which was responsible for the king's own expenses, which, of course, could equally be seen as public money in a way. Part of the reason for Henry's profligacy was the narrow nature of his active support base. Don't leap to conclusions that this meant that everyone wanted Richard back, because there's no great evidence of that at all. But after the defeat of the Epiphany Rising, Henry was left without a big base of magnates on whom to draw. So, there was a bunch where the heirs were all underage, minors. This applied to the families of Holland, Montague, Dispenser, Mortimer and Mowbray. The earls of Arundel, Warwick and Stafford were also young and just coming of age. The Duke of York and his son, Edward of Rutland, were distinctly dodgy. OK, so Rutland had fessed up about the Epiphany Rising in time, but really only just in time. Clearly there'd been a bit of dithering going on. As a result, Henry was left with the Beauforts, John Beaufort, the Earl of Somerset, and his brother Henry, the Bishop of Winchester, and Thomas Beaufort. And he was left with the Northerners, the Earl of Westmoreland, the Neville family, and of course the Earls of Northumberland, the Percy family, the guys largely responsible for putting him on the throne in the first place. And in the world ecclesiastical, Henry would increasingly rely on Thomas Arundel, the Archbishop of Kent. So, Henry took Richard's approach to the whole thing. He simply enlarged the Lancastrian affinity. The heart of this was a group of Lancastrian baronial families like Lord Grey of Ruthin on the marches, Thomas Erpingham in Norfolk. Now there were good things about this. Their loyalty was unquestioned and it gave Henry a reserve of men-at-arms he could call on at very short notice. But it cost a bomb in terms of annuities and annual payments and exacerbated the money problems we've been talking about. Plus, it laid Henry open to the charge that he was basically running an extension of the Duchy of Lancaster rather than being proper king. Now, I said that there wasn't a massive underswell of support and longing for the days of good old King Dick, but the question of legitimacy would be in Henry's mind and those of his people long after his reign became basically secure. As an example, let me relate a conversation between Henry and a slightly bonkers friar who decided he'd gather 500 people and go and look for King Richard. You ought to be a wise man. Do you say that Richard still lives? I say not that he lives, but I say that if he lives, he is in truth the King of England. He resigned. He resigned against his will, in prison, which is not according to the law. He was deposed. 
When he was king, he was taken by force and put into prison, and is spoiled of his realm, and you have usurped the crown. I have not usurped the crown, but I was chosen there at by election. The election is void. If the true and lawful possessor is alive, and if he is dead, he is dead because of you. And if he is dead by your deed, you have lost all the right and the title you might have had to the crown. By my head, I shall have your head. So that's not good. If you cast your mind back to Henry's declaration when he was taking the throne, he kept it very vague, because his right by inheritance was ever so slightly dodgy. Well, when I say ever so slightly dodgy, what I really mean is it was totally dodgy. It's the young Mortimer, the eight-year-old Earl of March, who's really next in line. So Henry just talked about the fact that he was in line, and then the next line of defence was, well, that he'd been elected, which again was slightly dodgy if he's not the true heir. It's something of a paradox. It's a bit like going on a diet. No one in their right minds wants to go on a diet and avoid donuts, since clearly donuts are the food of the gods, but I really ought to go on a diet. Really, no one wanted Richard back, but maybe they ought to want him back. And Henry's hands were dipped in blood, however utterly unavoidable Richard's death might have been. Plus, so far, Henry wasn't exactly managing to cover himself with glory. he talked about reviving the glory days of good old King Ted, but the first thing he did was to confirm the massively long 28-year truce with Charles VI of France that Richard himself had made. Then, he made the major mistake of becoming embroiled in a war with Scotland, which Edward I and II had conclusively proved was just a bad idea. OK, so it was basically as much Robert III's fault as Henry's. And Robert III was giving him a loaded lip and he was refusing to recognise Henry and he was refusing to confirm a truce. But really, it was hardly worth the following invasion, marching a surprisingly large and expensive army all the way up to Edinburgh. He got basically zip for his pains. The Scots ran away to where the English couldn't get at them. And when Henry ran out of money and food, as per normal, the Scots negotiated rings round him, and he found himself back in England without really knowing why. Years later, Henry himself would accuse the chief Scottish negotiator that he had, by many white lies and subtle promises, had suddenly caused the king to leave the land of Scotland. This didn't help Henry's financial situation, and it didn't help his reputation. He looked like a plonker. In 1401, Robert, King of Scotland, and a bunch of Celts and Gaels, such as the Lords of Ireland, would have received the following letter from a chap called Owen Glyndwr. I and my ancestors and all my said people have been, and still are, under the tyranny and bondage of mine and your mortal foes, the Saxons. And from this tyranny and bondage the prophecy saith that I shall be delivered by the aid and succour of your royal majesty. Jolly interesting, isn't it? First of all, why are the poor old Saxons getting the blame? It's been quite a few centuries since they've been doing any pillaging. And anyway, it was the Angles who did most of the beating up of the Welsh, wasn't it? And really, it's the Normans who started all the trouble to the Welsh heartland and all that. But whatever. In tyranny and bondage, the author of this letter had a point. Let us spend a bit of time catching up with Wales. 
After the conquest and defeat of Llewellyn af Griffith in 1282, the Principality of Gwynedd had become an appanage of the crown, which of course was given by tradition now to the heir to the throne as the Prince of Wales. Wales at the time was broadly divided into the northern part, composed of the shires of Carnarvon, Anglesey and Marianoth, and the southern part of Carmarthen and Cardigan, and each part was administered by a separate justicia. Meanwhile, the marcher lords continued to hold their semi-autonomous consolidated lordships in the south and on the eastern border of Wales. These were held by 15 families, basically, and you will be more than delighted to know that there is a rather fascinating map on the interweb to show you where all these folk are. The wealth and power of these consolidated holdings, so different to the magnate's normal landholding pattern, was still the defining factor in Welsh politics, and the income those families drew from the marches meant it was a major factor in English politics to boot. Since the conquest, Wales had become a deeply divided society. On the one hand, a new structure had completely dissolved the old system of lordship and local ties and loyalties. Throughout southern and lowland Wales, there had been substantial settlement by an English gentry, on whom the magnates depended for pretty much everything. Managing estates, collecting rents, administering justice, and most importantly, getting the fines and dues from justice. This gentry saw Wales as its home. They were completely settled. Some of them used Welsh aliases or married Welsh women. But they were English. They had entirely English customs. They looked English. They smelled English. And they were English. And similarly and crucially, there were 80 or so market towns or boroughs where the English formed the property-owning and governing elite. On the other hand, the Welsh retained their own sense of identity, traditions, language and values, and the Welsh aristocracy never anglicised. The head of the family, the high man or Uchel were, with grovelling apologies for the highly likely mispronunciation of the word, the Uchel were might live pretty well, might work in the service of English lords and build up a reasonable family estate. Now these families in effect became the keeper of the keys of Welsh traditions and culture and formed the bridge between both societies. Successful Welsh families like Griffith, Tudor and Glyndwr were held in esteem by the Welsh for their ancestry and position and valued by the English for their value as a channel of local influence. But they and the rest of Welsh society were quite distinct from the English. English rule in Wales was never equitable or light-handed and the changes of the 14th century didn't help. The Black Death hit hard in the lowland Wales and had some positive longer-term impacts, as elsewhere, domain farming declined and with its serfdom also declined, and money rents with free tenants grew. The availability of land changed its use, more towards pasture. But fewer people and more empty land meant falling incomes for the great and the good. Faced with a threat to the availability of cucumber sandwiches, landlords responded by intensifying the exploitation of their rights. They took over communal rights of pasture, taking them away from the community. They increased taxes and payments for justice wherever they could. Essentially, they sweated their rights and assets for all they were worth. And the result was loads of money, maybe as much as £60,000 each year in income. Obviously, the people being sweated were, you guessed it, the Welsh. 
So the super summary is that the Welsh nourished their identity through lineage, language and culture. But the English, the Crown and the martial lords in particular were just too strong for them to gain liberty and nationhood against an oppressive rule. It's slightly ironic that it was the growth of royal power that destabilised the situation. Essentially, families of the marcher lords who drove and maintained English rule through their local knowledge and connections and influence either disappeared or went dark. A minority, that sort of thing. The Hastings Estates in Pembrokeshire escheated to the Crown in 1389 as the line came to an end. In 1389, the Mortimer Estates went into the Crown's wardship because of a minority. Gower and Chepstow were taken from the Mowbray hands and into the Crown. Richard had displaced the Arundel family as well. So for a while, English local influence was broken. The combination of a vacuum of power and a ramping up of economic hardship and exploitation created the conditions for rebellion. But it needed a spark. The aspiration for freedom needed a leader. Enter stage left, hands clasped over his head, Welsh crowds cheering wildly, Owen Glyndwr. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Glyndwr is a bona fide, honest-to-goodness national hero in the mould of Alfred Bruce Joan of Arc. Success in the face of all the odds. But given that the immediate outcome was not to be an independent Welsh state, his reputation probably suffered in the immediate aftermath of the war. Glyndwr's fight for the freedom of himself and his people was not a simple fight between light and truth and the forces of darkness. It was a civil war between Welshmen as well as between Welsh and English. It was, like any medieval war, full of destruction, the impact of which was remarked on by chroniclers for decades afterwards. It would be worth contrasting Glyndwr's life with that of Daffid Gam, one of his great Welsh opponents. Daffid was descended from the Welsh rulers of Brickeniog, and the Gam family had been loyal to the Bahoon family as lords of Brecon, and when the lordship moved to Bolingbroke through Mary Bahoon's marriage to Henry, Daffid carried on that tradition of loyalty. He suffered for it. Captured and ransomed at one point by Glyndur, he was saddled with a debt it took some time to clear and had to have the help of Henry V. But nonetheless, his loyalty never wavered. He was to fight at Agincourt, be fated for his bravery and skills and to lose his life there. The point of this is that Glyndur doesn't get much of a press or not that has survived in the immediate aftermath and the main feeling is one of the misery of destruction and dislocation the war had caused. In Shakespeare, however, we get a more positive picture of the man, a fierce warrior, but also cultured and dignified. 
Other writers in the 16th century focused a lot on the disruption and the chaos of war, a rather unfair amount of which is laid at Glyndwr's door. So it's not until Thomas Pennant in the late 18th century that someone came along who really rehabilitated Glyndwr's reputation and sparked interest again, travelling around and describing the legends and landscapes associated with his name. With the 19th century and the revival of Welsh liberal ideals, Glyndwr at last began to be raised to his natural status. His talents as a war leader and inspirer of men and a statesman began to be better recognised. He began to be used to support the aims of the liberal movement in Wales at the time, the drive for a Welsh parliament, a reformed and liberated church and a national university. In the 1930s, the famous historian J.E. Lloyd established a firm footing for academic study of his life and times, but Glyndwr's status has not suffered as a result. So despite all that, Glyndwr is an oddly elusive figure, or at least I found him to be so. He's quite often not present at major events or battles. But we know something of his life before 1400, and it was a life reasonably typical of the Uchulwyr, the Welsh aristocracy. Glyndwr held a reasonable amount of land in Powys, in northwestern Wales on the border, and total lands that yielded him about 300 marks a year, so he was what you might call comfortable. He had a favourite bard, Iolo Goch, who sang a few words about how nice his home seeketh was, what a generous host Owen was, that sort of thing. He had an impressive Welsh ancestry, for example from Griffith Fichan, one of the very few princely survivors of Edward I's invasion, Prince of Powys. Also, back to the princes of the old Welsh kingdom of de Hubarth. But he was also very much part of the modern lordship and loyalties. He'd spent a good deal of time in England, training in law. He was a soldier, serving for the English at Sloys and Berwick. And the very same Iolo Goch sang songs of his exploits. He had close connections with the Arundel Marcher family. On the face of it then, at 41, with a family tradition of service to the English, Owen Glyndwr was an unlikely rebel, or freedom fighter, depending on your viewpoint. The castle of Glyndiff Ridwy is today a hump called Glyndwr's Mound. It looks thoroughly lovely, set in the Dee Valley, but it doesn't look exactly like the right place to start a rebellion. But on the 16th of September, that's exactly what happened. Glyndwr met with his brother Tudor, his brothers-in-law, some members of the Welsh clergy, including Hewell Kiffin, the Dean of St Asaph's, and their soothsayer, a bard called Crack Finnant. Together they raised up Glyndwr to be their prince, the Prince of Wales. There's a satisfactory amount of doubt as to exactly why this man with a reasonably conventional background and life to date decided to rebel but it seems likely that local politics were the main cause, though on the other hand it's perfectly conceivable that he'd just nursed the hatred and resentment of English oppression for many years and just decided enough was now enough. After all, I know a few modern Welsh folk who feel exactly the same way. But close by lived an influential member of Henry's affinity, Lord Grey of Ruthin, a Lancaster man through and through. Now, it appears that Grey had his eyes on a parcel of Glyndwr's land and had gone after it. There's an exchange of letters in 1400 where a friend warns Glyndwr that Grey is planning to, quote, 
burn and slay in whatever part of the country he secured in. Glyndur, as he was to prove, was, however, no pushover. In reply, he declared to Grey, As many men as you slay, and as many houses that you burn for my sake, as many I will slay for your sake, and doubt not that I will have bread and ale of the best that is in your lordship. Grey, in return, taunted Glyndur that he'd lay all the facts before the king's council and obtain for him a rope, a ladder, and a ring, high on a gallows for to hang, and thus shall be your ending. Now, I hope I'm not jumping to conclusions when I guess that these two didn't get on. Grey was probably confident in Henry's support as part of his affinity, but had managed to do also a bit of groundwork to blacken Glyndor's name with the king. The story goes that Glyndor was summoned to the Scottish campaign by the king, but Grey managed to deliver the summons just one day before the off, so Glyndor couldn't get there on time. Just to add insult to injury, Glyndor appears to have expected some juicy jobs coming his way from the crown, the job of forester and warden of Churchland. He was sadly disappointed when he was passed over. Glyndor had been out-politicked by Grey, but Grey was about to find out that he'd picked the wrong man at the wrong time. On the 18th of September, Glyndor appeared without warning with a horde of 270 Welshmen outside Grey's town of Ruthin. By the end of the day, it was burning. Town after town followed in short order. Denby, Rudland, Flint, Harden, Holt, Oswestry and Welshpool. At all these towns, the story was the same. Terrified townspeople rushing for the safety of the castle with as much as they could carry while their houses burned behind them and the screams of the slowest filled the air. Unfortunately for Glyndur, at this point, the damage he could do was limited. As yet, he didn't have the wherewithal to successfully attack castles. Even more unfortunately for Glyndur, as he retreated north from Welshpool, there was a man called Hugh Burnell with a bunch of soldiers. Burnell was a grizzled 50-year-old warrior, the last of his line, in fact, whose family leave their name in the village of Acton Burnell. Hugh had been named as one of the evil councillors of Richard II, but on the 24th of September he did his king good service by raising the levies of Shropshire, Staffordshire and Warwickshire, meeting and destroying Glyndor's force, though failing, crucially, to take the main man. As it happens, Henry had been on his way already to Shrewsbury, but when he heard the news of Benel's victory, he, along with pretty much everyone, probably assumed that was that. Just another false alarm. Nonetheless, the Welsh retreated into the hills, so everything seemed quiet. Henry confiscated Glyndor's estates and headed for London. Now, there seemed to be two ways of looking at this. On the one hand, Henry had shown himself to be quick and decisive, responding with impressive speed to the problem. On the other hand, he fails to engage with any important Welsh force, and consequently it's rather difficult to identify anything his intervention actually achieved in 1400. Maybe we should forgive him this. It looked for all the world as though Bernal had done his job already. But over the next few years, despite continuing to take a firm and active lead, Henry does fail to appear to understand that this war was not about the chivalric battles and chivalsay that had characterised the early years of the Hundred Years' War. It was a war of logistics. So too often, Henry marches in with a big army, 
ravages the land far and wide, the Welsh run away to their hills. Henry can't sustain the army for long, and when he retreats, out come the Welsh and raid the English for the food they've lost in the Chavorsay. In the vacuum of lordship we talked about earlier, the Welsh retain the initiative. Edward I's massive castles are exposed, vulnerable and poorly supplied. Famously, Henry's son, Henry of Monmouth, Henry V-to-be, will fill that vacuum, appointed by his father, and Henry of Monmouth will begin to grasp the fact that it is logistics that count. The English need to control and use the sea to resupply their castles. Anglesey was effectively the breadbasket of Wales and must be controlled. Supply lines between the castles on the coast and the castles of the interior must be maintained. So, if 1400 had been something of a troubled year for Henry, it didn't get any better in 1401. From January to March, his Parliament was something of a mare. Despite his best promises previously, he needed money again, and Parliament was not sympathetic. Secondly, there was general concern about the level of violence in the kingdom, and after all, the king's peace was in the end the basic measure of a king. A report commissioned and submitted to Henry said, Law and justice are exiles from the kingdom. Robbery, killing, adultery, fornication, persecution of the poor, injury and justice of all kinds abound. Instead of the rule of law, the will of the tyrant now suffices. Against this background, a few things of particular significance are worth recording. Firstly, Parliament insisted that Henry stop managing the place like it was an extension of the old Duchy of Lancaster and appoint new ministers. And mind you, keep those ministers until the next Parliament and swear them in, in front of Parliament. Now this is a significant political point and comes back time after time throughout English history. Does the King have the right to choose his own ministers or does Parliament get to choose them? We are, of course, used now to the idea that Parliament chooses ministers, of course, but it very much fell into the outrageous suggestion category in 1400. So Henry tried to push back and refused to accept the principle of having to keep ministers between parliaments. But in practice he did change the ministers and in practice he did swear them in in front of parliament. Then, outrageous suggestion number two, parliament demanded that the king answered their petitions before they agreed to give him money. We've actually had this before. It makes an enormous difference to be asking the king for favours before he gets what he wants than it does to be asking for them after he's got what he wants. Sternly, Henry rejected the idea. But in practice, this is exactly what happened. He had to grant petitions before taxation got voted. Poor old Henry wasn't in a strong position. Thirdly, it was a bunch of anti-Welsh legislation. Henry might have hoped that the worst of the revolt was over, but plenty of rumours were doing the rounds. That Glyndwr's cousins, Rhys and Gwilym ap Tudor, were raising Anglesey against the crown. That Welsh labourers were disappearing from estates. Rumour and gossip, secret messages and plans were being passed from friars and bards and vagabonds. Glyndwr's agents were alive in the land. Glyndwr had sent the Dean of St Asaph's to Oxford, the same man who had proclaimed him Prince of Wales. And as a result, Welsh scholars were leaving Oxford to go to Glyndwr, maybe to start a centre of Welsh learning. So Wales was in ferment. Something was going to happen, something was in the air. So at Parliament, legislation even more oppressive hit the statute books. 
if that were possible. Now Welshmen couldn't buy land in England. They couldn't hold office in border towns. They couldn't prosecute Englishmen in Wales, for example. Now, if you wanted an excuse for a rebellion, here it was. Ian Mortimer claimed that Henry didn't want this legislation, but whatever, it was passed, so he has at least to carry part of the can for that. Though he also has to be credited with trying to bring Glyndwr back into the fold by issuing a pardon for him. Despite the innuendo and rumour, Glyndwr was in hiding and nowhere to be seen. So, let me take you to one of Edward I's greatest castles, the mighty Conwy Castle on the north coast of Wales, as perfect an example of 13th century military architecture as you could wish for. Despite its might, and despite the approaching crisis, Conwy badly needed repair. The constable John de Massey nursed a garrison of 50 men-at-arms and 60 archers. So, it's April the 1st, and some carpenters are slowly approaching the wardens on the castle gate. There's no reason for suspicion. One of the carpenters was well known to the guards, and had been engaged on a job in the castle for quite a while. Though if the warders had been alive to the dangers, maybe they'd have noticed the odd flash of steel in the coming and growing crowd outside the castle walls, or taken note of watchful, unoccupied men hanging around on street corners. As the carpenters approached, there was suddenly a cry of alarm quickly cut off as the two men killed the wardens and called their men. Because in fact, two of the carpenters were Glyndor's cousins, Gwillem and Reset Tudor, and suddenly 40 of their companions were rushing through the gate and into the castle. Inside, everyone was taken by complete surprise, and the constable and his men panicked and folded in the most abject way. And before nightfall, Conway Castle one of the most powerful castles in Wales and a symbol of English might, were in rebel hands. It was an April Fool's Day disaster for the English. April Fool's Day disaster for the English seems like a great place to leave. Next time we'll hear more about Glyndor's revolt and how it becomes part of the wider politics of the realm. Thanks to all your comments on the website and Facebook and so on, and indeed to all of you for listening. Good luck everyone and have a great week. <laughs>